So, see if this is on or not. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, good morning, afternoon. Yeah. We're here. They can hear me, I'm sure. Hi. Everybody, it's a pleasure. To, can you hear me now? Yeah. It's going on and off. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, can you hear us? In the back? Yeah, good. I, it, this is going to be a trade session, uh, something called the Trinity, as you can imagine, that is basically the three largest economies in the world, China, US, and Europe, in this very complicated uh, embryo of a trade war. We're not very sure whether we're already there or not. It so happens that I've been asked to chair the session, but I'm also a speaker. I hope that you know that I can do this well without affecting other speakers' time, so I'll be very brief on, on the first presentation. So the idea here is to have a, some slides for you, and then we'll have some comments and ideas from Ignasi, uh, who is a partner in the Brussels office of KL, KL Gates, which I just heard is a... It's a law, uh, law firm, and I understand, yes, you're doing policy work there. And then Carl Hamilton, who is a special advisor on trade policy to the European Commission, to Commissioner Malmström. So I, I guess we're well-placed to talk about the topic, and, and we just start, and, and I hope we can do this very interactively with lots of questions from each other and, and of course, from the, from the public. So... Without uh, further ado, I'll start with a few slides on what I'm going to take on my side, which is really China-US, uh, and in fact, it starts there. So I would argue that that this is perhaps uh, a good start, and then we can move to Europe. And I'll talk about Europe, but I won't take into account EU-US trade issues, but only Europe as a recipient of whatever is happening from US and China. So that would be my take on this. So this is the three things I'll be, I, I learned yesterday that I need to, yeah, I know, that it's, here we go. We need to be patient. I should, so many years in China should have learned that this is the way to go, but I still sometimes hesitate to be patient. So. I'm going to talk about U.S. containment. I'm, so the whole presentation is really about containment. It's not really about trade-only, trade deficits. I'm not even going to show you any trade deficit because I don't think that's where the story is, at least for U.S.-China trade. And then I'll move very briefly to measures that the U.S. is taking to contain China beyond trade, trade mainly investment, but also tax competition in a way. And then I'll move to Europe and what, you know, how is this going to affect Europe since we are here in Brussels? Okay, so, you know, the trick of not being able to go ahead. Oh, my God. Uh, that, 
apparently over there, but I, I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe it goes too fast now. Okay, so this is just a table with lots of detail, but I know that so much has happened that I thought it would be nice to just summarize what has happened. And I was sitting in Hong Kong in my office writing reports on the 7th of February when the thing started officially with these solar panels and washing machines and everybody was scratching you know, their heads and why, what is this for really? It was kind of multilateral at the time in the way it was implemented with some uh, exemptions that were really on developing nations. So not really related to national security as was the case with steel and aluminum and certainly not touching on what, to me, is the key issue for the U.S., which is China's moving up the ladder, which only came later uh, with the third measure on intellectual property. Those 1,333 products that actually uh, were included in the very first list of the first, um, of, you know, of Section 31 used by uh, uh, the U.S. administration on China in particular. So this has evolved, as you know, so the list was withdrawn. There was some negotiation. Uh, in that negotiation, what we know is that there was kind of a very, very big request from the U.S. for China. The letter, as you probably remember, that kind of surrounded letter included massive imports from China, from the U.S., um, the figure being of the order of 200 billion, and also the second part of the letter included lots of opening up, you know, expectations of opening up from China. <clears throat> I'm only focusing here on that list and what that uh, may imply, the revised list, because basically it so seems, at least we will only know on the 6th of July, that there is no such thing as a deal uh, between the U.S. and China. So the list has been uh, re uh, reworked, and I'm going to give you some details on that new list. Um, and also, of course, on China's retaliation, which has also evolved over time. So there's been quite a few relevant changes for Europe in the new list for China's retaliation. And the interesting thing is that the figures have been evolving in a very nice and coherent way. So now we are 6th of April, 34 billion US bill in terms of import tariffs on China, and China coming up with exactly 34 billion. So, you know, it does look like uh, in a way, an arm race of measures that look as much as possible alike. But what I'm going to show is that they're not really um, as alike as we think. And uh, this is really the key mis message. And when you look at that detailed list, and I forget about iron and steel because I don't think that's where the game is, you can actually see that U.S. is targeting mainly high-end products from China. So 55% of those 1,100 something today, so the full list, although only partially implemented on the 6th of July, includes very, uh, really products that to an extent, at least in two cases, are not yet even exported from China into the US. I can give you the example of aircraft and uh, airspace and arms and ammunition. These are products that China does export but not to the U.S. yet. So you can tell that there is a lot of China future in the message, in the, in, in, in the action list that the U.S. has offered uh, for import tariffs. And China instead, as you can see there, started with a, a list that was more uh, balanced. There were some high-end products, 
which included, by the way, the U.S. has now included semiconductors, something that China does not export out of, of its own homegrown business. Most of the semiconductor large companies in China are foreign. So it's very weird. It seems they are targeting China manufacturing 2025 as such, rather than what China is exporting now to the U.S. This is why we, we basically say U.S. is targeting China's future. China, instead, did have some of these high-end products from the U.S. The most obvious one was aircraft. They've actually excluded aircraft from the list, from the final list. And it's actually much increasingly um, focusing on lower-end, especially agro and, of course, um, uh, you know, low-end products in general. So here you have a little bit more of, of detail of what I just said. What is China targeting? So, for example, vehicles as well from the U.S., um, and, you know, what has happened with the aircraft and so on. So you have all of the detail there. I need to rush not to take too much of uh, the available time. Uh, it did go, yeah. Now maybe we want to talk about why the U.S. Uh, chose Section 301. I think this, again, um, I'll be very brief, but points to the fact that it was really more of a tech arm race or than really a trade deficit issue. Because the difference between 301 and 337, and everybody was expecting 337 to be used beyond the fact that 337 can basically would have made it harder because you would have had to go product by product rather than 301, is also about the coverage of 301, Section 301, which is hardly used today, as you can see from that graph, because you know now we have, of course, um, uh, the very same tool at the uh, WTO level. Um, um, uh, with, uh, with the international trade dispute system. But beyond that, I think there is an issue that 301 al allows the U.S. to go beyond its own market. So if something happens in the third market that affects the U.S. industry, they can actually use Section 301. And again, remember that we're talking about products that China ha does not yet export to the U.S. So I think there is a lot of, uh, to me, this helps understand what, what is really happening. Uh, which is, again, in my view, more of a future than current problem for the U.S. Uh, so here you have all of this. I'm going to move very fast. The idea why uh, 301 was used, this third market story, with the exact examples of the items included in the list that were not uh, yet exported to the U.S. Now, very quickly, I, I really want to make the point that um, this is not only about trade. If you actually look at what was happening, even uh, since Trump was elected, but I would argue even before, but uh, I focus on, on these uh, more recent years, you can already see that a lot of China's overseas investment, especially M&A, not so much Greenfield, has already been uh, limited in the US. So there you have two things. First, you have the, the fact that although at, I mean, I should acknowledge first that China's M&A, overseas M&A, has come down in 2017. We know that. Well, we're writing on the fact that it might not even be true, but that's a different topic because a lot is happening from subsidiaries elsewhere. But say we take the official figures, the composition of 2017, our FDI, is much more geared towards Europe compared to the U.S. and also a Belt and Road Initiative um, compared to what was the case in 2016, which was the key peak year of China's 
our MA in the world. Now, if you look at what uh, CFIUS is targeting, it's basically targeting, uh, and, and I'm, I'm showing in red China cases, manufacturing. Manufacturing. Um, why is this the case? I'll link this to Europe in a second, and uh, this graph is to me the, the most important graph given the audience that I have to show you today. It's not about trade, it's about investment, but it's in line with this idea that there is this tech war, arms race, if I may say, that pushes China towards Europe. So if you think about the story that the US is trying to contain China, trade-wise, investment-wise, China is increasingly buying in Europe. Beyond the fact that it's buying more, as I showed you, I want to focus on the composition of what they're buying in Europe. And what you can see in this graph, I don't know if I can use the pointer, not really, but the, the big thing there in Europe in 2017, 63% of the purchases of companies, Chinese companies buying in Europe, are into the industrial sector. Look at the US. The industrial sector used to be relevant in 2014, uh, not very, very much, but 12% is nil now. They've not been able to acquire a single industrial company in the US this year, meaning 2017. So that's what it is. And, the, and Europe moved from 16% industrial to 63. I, I happen to have the list of these corporates because we have the micro data, and they're not let me tell you, low-end companies that they are buying. That's what they're doing in Europe. We like it or not. In the US, um, it's more on the energy, on the financial sector, but also ICT. So this is a very different composition for Europe and, and the US. And I think it's something interesting uh, for us to discuss later. Uh, I would uh, finish in terms of uh, this containment, US containment, by saying that no matter how relevant uh, tax reform may have been for the U.S. domestically, no doubt about it. I'm not arguing they did all of this for China, but it does have an international component. And we wrote a blog, um, I remember, in Bruegel about this, saying that one more way for the U.S. to contain China is, of course, to try to repatriate profits from China into the U.S., at least U.S. companies or other multinationals. It so happens that, to me, this is the least effective measure that the U.S. can ever take because China's tax, corporate tax system is very flexible, to say the least, and with lots of exemptions. So when you calculate the effective tax ratio, is only 17% to start. And second and most importantly, I don't think that um, you can ever convince any Chinese company to move headquarters to the U.S. just for the sake of taxes, as you can imagine. But you could, of course, argue you could convince some multinationals. Now, the point is the Chinese immediately after the tax reform were announced, um, announced immediately they, they said that if needed, they would exempt foreign firms from any corporate tax for reinvested profits. So the discussion is over. They can do that. They don't need a European Council of any form to take that decision. And, you know, it's just very, very fast. So I don't think taxes are in any way uh, a, a tool for the U.S. to compete or to contain China, but trade and especially investment, I would argue, are much more effective. So very, very quickly, what is it in for Europe? I mean, where are we in this beyond the bilateral decisions that may have been taken? Well, this may be uh, controversial. I'm sure it will be controversial. Um, 
I'm expecting a lot of uh, comments. Uh, but uh, the reality is that when you think about this bilateral trade war only, forget about two very important issues, I mean, direct uh, relations between uh, the US and Europe, and of course, the global value chain, which is also very important, although we wrote a piece in Bruegel once upon a time looking at Brexit and you know the European value chain, I would still argue that it's very, very regional, our value chain, compared to the US and, and compared to Asia. Very meaning that basically within Europe, which makes my point slightly stronger. But I acknowledge that these are two caveats of the point I'm going to make. What is the point I'm trying to make is that, frankly, if you tell me between a deal with the US and China, 200 billion, say, and no deal with the US and China, I'm not sure what I would prefer. I would probably prefer the latter. It sounds very non-trade and very protectionist, but I'm just saying, gosh, I mean, the fact is that we can take some of the space left, both in the US and China. That is the point. And I, I acknowledge that I'm forgetting part of the value chain story, but I, I do think we need to realize that if a deal is reached, this is just the sectors that kind of you know, look alike between the China's top 10 imports from the US and China's top 10 import sectors from Europe. And you see motor vehicles, I mean, you see chemicals, you see machinery, I mean, they basically are all there. They're about the same sectors. So we do compete in China. Uh, so if we were not to have any deal, and this graph is slightly difficult to uh, understand, so I'll try to guide you through it. What we have here is imagine all of the measures I, I mentioned, yeah, the thousand hundred items that the US is stopping from China, or at least 25% import tariff, which is not bad, and China has a, a similar list with different components, of course. So if you were to argue that because of the high increase in import tariffs, if Europe were to accommodate that, and of course we're looking at where Europe really exports, because some sectors are not alike, how much could Europe do? So for example, if, you know, the, the color shows how important is the sector for Europe. So take motor vehicles. Blue means, you have it there, from 15 to 20 billion in exports. So it's a big sector for Europe, we all know that. So, European uh, uh, automobile companies could export as much as 65% of what they, more of what they now export to China, thanks to the fact that the US market is closed. That, that is what this graph shows. The other one is the gains in the US market from the fact that the US is imposing tariffs on China. So what are the most important uh, ones? Motor vehicle is very small because China hardly exports to the US. But you have other sectors there, basically machinery, which, because it's blue, remember, it's a big sector where we would export 77% more of what we yet now export. If I put this in billions of US dollars, which is what I'm doing next, what you see is that the big gain for European corporates in China in the case in which, which we're very close to that, by the way, we have a trade war and these import tariffs are increased, is the, is the automobile sector. That's it. Now, if you sum all of those billions of dollars, you know, it's, of course, this is the extreme. Yeah? We substitute everything, so about 18 billion. I'm not saying we will manage to do that, but the reality is that these are potentially large gains. If I do the same for China, you start seeing other sectors, but the point I want to make is that these numbers are bigger. 
So now I get to the conclusions. The fact that the numbers are bigger for the US really means that, let alone the transatlantic alliance, if I were to focus only on trade, I have more to lose from the US market than from the Chinese market. This is the, basically the essence of the message. Which means that if we want to play, say we would like to get these gains, yeah? A midfield role and not a one-sided position, as we probably, I mean, we're closer to that now. We've not yet fully uh, made up our minds, but I would argue that uh, also given the fact that the U.S. is pushing us in that direction, we're, of course, closer to the U.S. But I'm just saying, gosh, the problem is that's where we have more to lose. So in a way, it's even logical to do that. So from China's perspective, to me, the key point is we've been talking about market access reciprocity for so long, yeah? But now the, the wake-up call is there because they have so much more to lose compared to what was the case in the status quo. It's a different world. Now, if China wants to have at least, because imagine that we're not in this tech race. We imagine Europe is, you know, we just want to export, basically. And I, I, I don't think I'm too far from the truth, but we can discuss this. The point there is that we would need to negotiate much more from China to rebalance slightly and to, to be more neutral than we can ever be now because we're trapped by the fact that we export so much more to the US. So if I were China, I would be keener than ever to engage in a conversation because having basically the two largest economies in the world on one side doesn't look very promising for China down the road. So I, I leave it there and um, thank you very much for your time and patience. And I'm going to start with the second speaker, which is Ignasi, for comments and I'll, I'll just leave this on. Yeah, thank you. I'm trying to digest the speech that we need to move from transatlantic to real, really being just a broker between the US and China. Well, I'm not sure whether, but uh, definitely, well, thank you to Bruegel for inviting me. Uh, yes, I'm a partner at Allo Firm, but doing policy and regulatory. For the record, I'm a former member of the European Parliament, where I was at the International Trade Committee for five years, uh, uh, the vice chair of the committee. So my angle is, uh, of course, legally grounded, but, but essentially policy-oriented, policy not, no, not an economist, uh, an economy analyst. Uh, also, in terms of, for, for, for the record, I'm currently the director, although I don't represent it here, but I'm the director in Europe of the Transatlantic Business Council, who is the successor of the Transatlantic Business Dialogue. So I'm not representing the TABC, but indeed that provides a good source of information about, you know, the mood in, uh, on the transatlantic side, uh, the mood on, on some very important uh, large companies, some of which are here uh, represented even now. Um, on, on all this issue. So what I'll try is to, I'm not a prophet, not a prophet, not the son of a prophet, so uh, I cannot make uh, prophecies about what's going on uh, or what will happen. I can, however, make some kind of short-term forecast uh, of all the different battles that we have at the table. Just I think that's what I believe it can be useful and then we will open some time for, for, for a dialogue afterwards from a US perspective. And of course, how will that impact Europe. The, the main problem for such an analysis is that there is no plan. Uh, and of course, the US has no plan. This is being done by the day. This is being done by, by criteria. We have nothing to do with the strategy. 
It would be much easier if uh, the conflict, this trade war potential, or already eventually real trade war, was a world where we know exactly what the other side wants to achieve. What is the piece of land that the other side wants to conquer? And then we would know, you know, how much can we give in, how much not, and how we bargain. But that has nothing to do with that. This is about elections, this is about power, this is about, about, about uh, somebody who is running the country and indirectly the world, or at least leading the world in a certain direction, without any real understanding of how trade works, against the companies of his own country, and I will quote afterwards very clear statements of that, so that it doesn't appear as a biased statement, uh, and even, I mean, firing any, any advisor or any expert who would say the contrary of his preconceived ideas about what needs to be done on trade. So that, of course, puts Europe and any analyst in a very complicated position to make a forecast, to do any negotiation, to do nothing. You know? So war requires some kind of strategy on generals on the other side. There are no generals on the other side. Or there's just one who is just going to move depending on the mood and depending on the situation. And of course, playing with the calendar of the next midterm elections, but not only that. So as, as a colleague of mine put in a, recently in a, in a presentation about this thing, what President Trump is doing is just sending to the sea different warships, you know, uh, with instructions, go and shoot. <laughs> go and shoot. And there's no, we don't know exactly how much of these warships can be called back uh, and how many things will they shoot when they are in the open sea. Hmm? Uh, so one of the first warships, of course, uh, it's already out in the sea. And it's section 232. You were mentioning different sections. Well, in our case, of course, this is section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962, which is uh, the steel and aluminum tariffs. I say aluminum instead of aluminum. I'm kind of uh, this US biased in this thing. The steel and aluminum uh, tariff, which, for example, it has not been reported enough here, was totally opposed by the Pentagon. So even these. The, the DOD, the Department of Defense, the Pentagon, did not support this inquiry. So it can go that far. You just ignore, and of course the Pentagon obeys, and at some point implements whatever instruction. But you can imagine that the Pentagon has a lot to do to say about steel, uh, aluminum, and probably as well, I know less, but uh, it has a lot to, to do. So when this investigation, you've heard about these kinds of investigations, which are similar to a point to our European Commission consultations, although they work differently. But when they are saying that, that uh, an investigation is taking place, we're essentially talking about the very large consultation with all the agencies involved, of course, with analysts and figures. And, and, but don't think of it as a pure intellectual analysis. Uh, an investigation means an opening to the society to receive inputs from, from stakeholders, from, from other agencies, from, from uh, ministries in the, in the US uh, scheme, you know, it works differently, but from the different uh, political uh, elements and actors, and of course from, from trade associations who have something to say. So during the investigation which led to the imposition of tariffs on steel and aluminum, there was an almost universal re rejection except from a couple of ideologues, but, but not, no one who really counted and no figures supported that. And still, they were imposed, you know where we are, and you know, as well as I do now, that the, the European Union, of course, already started with its own uh, retaliation, which, of course, has started to create an effect which will have an effect on the next issue uh, with Harley-Davidson. So, of course, Harley-Davidson has automatically said, okay, uh, if that is the result, I'm going to uh, start uh, uh, manufacturing our, our motorcycles in Europe. 
Um, and then in that case, that requires firing some employees, which are precisely the very voters that were supposed to be protected by this measure. Has that pushed President Trump to some kind of reaction and say, oh, perhaps I didn't do the right thing? No. The reaction is to start attacking online Harley Davidson as a bunch of cowards and to uh, threaten them with the highest taxes they will ever, that the U.S. has ever seen on a single company. So that's, that's, that's the scheme where we are. You know? Of course, this thing happening with Harley Davidson in the context of, of, of the re retaliation or response, you can call it, uh, from the European response to the steel and aluminum tariff, is looked, uh, I mean, very closely, looked at very closely for the next chapter, which is cars. And the cars are being, there's, there's the consultation on cars, you know, the, the investigation on cars is based exactly on the same instruments as the steel and oil. It's also a section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act, uh, and it's also based on security. And of course, the problem is that you can very easily, when people say this has nothing to do with security, well, up to a point, because the concept of economic security, and I could recommend Bruegel to make a full seminar on that, uh, on the concept of economic security, because of course economic security is everything. We will return to these things about the future investments and, and technology. All that you can turn economic security. So yes, in a way, uh, and if you think that cars and the car industry has to do with connected cars, self-driving cars, you know, it has moved from an old, uh, playing again with your concept about old and future, well, cars, are old and cars are future because because car manufacturers and car manufacturing has a lot to do with the future, although there will be completely different cars. So let's not go that, that path. But yes, definitely, you can easily make a policy argument uh, without any economic basis, but a policy argument about economic security as being a very important element for security. Therefore, you can use a piece of law which was not uh, approved for this purpose to prevent and to impose a very a strong tariff on, on cars. Will this happen? All the sources I've consulted say yes. Everybody has spoken in DC, and I am in a firm who is, uh, we are small here in Brussels, um, one of the largest policy shops in Washington, DC. This is not advertising, it's to say what <laughs> the context there. Yes, the perspective is there will be uh, tariffs imposed on cars. No? Tariffs or quotas, we'll see, because it doesn't need to be the result of this investigation, does not need to be necessarily tariffs. It can be any kind of measure. Uh, and uh, so it can be what is being anticipated, 20% uh, tariff, or it can, be, it can be quotas, it can be a combination of that, we will see. But it needs to be something uh, which is easy understandable by voters. It is not something that is easily understandable by economists. It cannot be some kind of disguise mechanism that in the end has a result of restricting the import of cars that people will not understand. No, no. It needs to be something you can say at a political rally. That's the measure. So if it is very green, it is very obscure, it will not work. So it needs to be, yes, we stopped X amount of cars, or we imposed this tariff, or we have this quarter. Otherwise, it won't work, and that's, that's what we're doing. So this is the first, the first warship and the second one which really on port and ready to sail. Now there's another warship that is not being mentioned that much, out of prudence, but it can be as big as or even bigger in some parts of Europe, which is uh, the attack from the US on the common agricultural policy, uh, on the CAP. It is starting now with the Spanish olives. Perhaps you're not following that thing, perhaps you're because the Spanish olives, because you believe that it's also a Spanish issue. Uh, the anti-dumping measures against Spanish olives. 
But that's being played through the WTO, uh, more or less. I mean, playing under WTO rules. But that is opening a huge Pandora's box, which is a direct attack on the common agricultural policy. Are there subsidies for uh, European agricultural products? Of course they are. Are they all legitimate? Well, let me quote the Director General of Trade, Mr. Demarty, who himself said that they might not be all of them legitimate. You know, uh, So if we start opening and attacking and looking frontally against everything which is subsidies in the agricultural sector and its input, of course, in international trade, that can be economically and socially as big as, or probably much bigger, not, I don't know with cars, I wouldn't say, but definitely much bigger than the steel and aluminum. So, and that is the next battle. Uh, that is going on right now. And it can, of course, the kind of retaliation that Europe will do then, which be also based in the same area. And indeed, the US has its own subsidies to agriculture, very, very important, which are, there's a kind of gentleman's agreement, or gentleman and ladies' agreement, of not discussing that, you know. I'm a great film lover, so when I read these and I think of these, I think of Casablanca. Uh, I, know you, I don't know how familiar you are with the film Casablanca, but this is like the WTO playing the role of the French captain entering into the Rick Saloon and saying, nobody can play here anymore, okay? Well, it could be, it could be, everybody's been playing there. The whole concept of subsidies in the agricultural field, some of them are what is called, you know, the, in, in, in the green box, you know, in, in, in using WTO terminology. So they are justifiable in certain conditions and others are on the limit. And uh, again, to quote the source of authority and not to be called an heterodox, you can check the hearing of Mr. Demati at the International Trade Committee just last week. And he himself was quoting with a uh, typical Brussels jargon uh, that the country I know the most, said Mr. Demati, has 40 measures which would not pass the filter of the, uh, I mean, uh, direct subsidy in, in the agricultural area, which would not pass the filter of WTO. So that is the second, the second block, or the third, if you include cars, that is there. Now, the other one has already been mentioned, of course, uh, is the whole attack that is happening on Chinese investment. This is different from the CFUs. The CFUs, which is one, that will apply to all of us. Uh, I mean, it applies to China, plus to everybody. The CFUs, you know, it's Committee for Foreign Investment in the US, and it's being reinforced. So the rule, so it's, it's the foreign direct screening, as we are calling it here, although here it's very funny. We have enormous difficulties to prove anything, and we believe that uh, restricts free trade. Well, in the US, well, they have already done it, practically. And it will restrict, by filtering, it will restrict any investment in the US, which will affect, for example, European investment in startups. And that's something I'm just leaving on the table because I'm, I'm, I don't want to go very much in detail and not that I, it could be, I mean, it, it, it's just a touch of attention. Huh? There's been this tendency for some European companies and European investors to believe that if a European startup is placed in the US, it becomes a proper startup. You know, you cannot have a startup in Paris, it's not nice enough, or in Madrid, you need to have a startup based in Silicon Valley and to make it an American startup with European money. Well, be careful what you wish for, because investment, future investment on US companies, technology companies will be at least filtered. From filtering to restricting, there's a way, uh, there's a path, it's not the same, but they will. So that's a specific issue. But in parallel to this, which is already there and which definitely applies to the EU and will have an impact on, 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 on reciprocal investment in which there will be no retaliation, let's be clear. We are not gonna, we have no instrument for now. We are preventing ourselves to have an instrument to prevent uh, any filtering, uh, to, to introduce any, any bigger filtering 
of, of U.S. investment in Europe. So that will not be outbalanced for the time being. There's the other issue, which, which it's a wait and see situation on the attacks against Chinese investment. That is also based on a very strange piece of legislation, uh, the International uh, Emergency Economic Powers, which uh, President Carter put in force at the beginning of the 70s against Iran. And after that, it's been used in, in large conflicts. You know, it's, it's uh, when you check the list and it's all online, everything today is everything online. So you can check the list of every single inquiry and, and measure that has been applied uh, under these things. Well, you have the largest conflicts, you know, you have, you have the, the war in Bosnia, you have Serbia, you have, uh, of course, Iran here, Iran there, you have Iraq invading Kuwait. It's a list of, it's very funny, it's, it's kind of a chronological list of the conflicts of the last 25 years or, or 30 years. And suddenly, using that instrument, the U.S. is going to impose uh, measures against China and, and restricting the kind of investments China can do in the U.S. Why is this also an issue for the EU? Because the wording is not clear yet. And while the purpose is China, and it is clearly declared China, as for now, uh, I mean, two days ago, there was a, a public debate between Peter Navarro, uh, the, the, the counselor at the White House, and the US TR, the Secretary of Commerce in the case of Mr. Ross, will be Ross saying, well, is this only China, or is this horizontal and, and technologically neutral? We don't know. Country neutral, as the term is. We don't know. If it's made country neutral, well, they can say it is intended for China. But if the rules are country neutral, well, they will apply to Europe as well. I mean, unless we start having a waiver for European countries. But then you will need to have waiver, which is not the same as being excluded from the scope of a law. Now, last but not least, the whole battle which is going on at the WTO which is also another part of this uh, trade war uh, and this large conflict. You, most of you, I guess, you're familiar with that. So there's a large conflict there going on between the US and the rest of the world, but essentially Europe and China, the most interesting is being, being sorted out, which is the dispute settlement uh, panel, which is uh, part of the dispute settlement body. So it, it actually fixes the decisions that then the dispute settlement body at the WTO will implement. Uh, and though it has a number of members, and then there's the appellate body of that, which has seven members, and it plays an essential role in the whole dispute settlement of the WTO, of the WTO. And as you know, the US has decided not to support the reappointment of any new member of the panel. That is putting the structure at the very, in a very tension situation now. It has seven members. There are four of them now, and one is retiring uh, in mid-August which means three out of seven. Well, with three out of seven, you cannot make, you, uh, the court cannot work anymore. So you are killing, you are completely, at that point, the court will, the, the, the appellate body will be killed, uh, will be killed by the, by, the end of, by the end of August. There's no appellate body in the WTO. So uh, China and the US, in this idea of just taking sides, in this case, the, China and Europe, sorry, Europe is kind of taking sides for now and preparing a plan B, which would be to create a kind of separate uh, ad hoc uh, new appellate body, new dispute settlement body, uh, which would apply to any conflict within the WTO except those which have the, uh, the United States as a party. Uh, the United States knows that, and that might be an argument to, to change. But, well, uh, we've been talking, I mean, I've been talking with, with, with people here in the U.S. mission and in the States, and the message is no appointment of any member of the appellate body until full reform of WTO. Uh, Probably today, well, tomorrow, in the, in the councils, uh, the European Council meeting, there's going to be a, par a paragraph on WTO reform. 
So yes, the EU is for WTO reform, but that definitely will not happen uh, before um, before the end of August. And in fact, part of the reform that the US is asking for is very complicated to do and will take a lot of time. So, bad news. Now, a political element on this. People would think, or perhaps you would think, okay, this is just till the midterm elections. Huh? Just a second. Uh, is that till the mid to the midterm elections? No, it is not. It is at least till the next presidency, presidential elections, because the midterm elections, it will not change. In theory, some of these things could be stopped by the Congress. Theory says that. And because this is, this is based in laws which uh, grant a certain amount of powers to the executive power, to the executive branch. So theoretically, a majority in Congress could overrun these or could limit those powers. They won't. I mean, if there is, they won't now because it's very complicated to imagine such a majority now in uh, before the, the midterm elections. And analysts say that even after the midterm elections, of course, if Republicans are confirmed and they, you know, and Democrats don't get the result they expect and they get the majority in the House and so on, well, then there will be no reason to change and the support for President Trump will just increase. If we are in the, the other scenario, which, yes, really, the Democrats have a majority in the House, not a majority in the Senate, that's really beyond, beyond any great expectation, but in the House is a possibility, then I will use a Spanish problem. They uh, literally translated the Spanish uh, expression. They will allow the White House to be cooked in its own sauce. Mm. <laughs> Um, so uh, that's not very much used in English, but I think it's self-explanatory. So they will not go out and do legislation which would just prevent the catastrophe from happening because they have no interest in that because, of course, the main objective is the presidential election. So the deadline for anything of this to change is the next presidential election, not before. Thank you. Thank you very much, Inez. Very, very interesting. So we now move um, straight to Carl, and, and then we can open the discussion. Thank you very much. Well, as you have heard, it's not only protectionism, it's not only economics, it's... Uh, well, I and perhaps I should start by introducing myself. I'm professor of international economics, worked a lot on trade and protectionism. Then I was, uh, for a while, at a big bank, and uh, they paid very well, but it was very boring. So I came into politics, I've been a member of parliament for many years and also served in the Swedish Ministry of Finance. And I know the uh, Cecilia Malmström, the commissioner, very well, so she appointed me very kindly to be her special advisor. Um, well, this, the issue is, is uh, not just, as I said, it's not just protectionism, it's not, not just economics, and in fact the the, the way the uh, new administration in the United States acts is, raises the question whether they have, as a, if they have any plan, but they have perhaps the ambition to undermine the international rules-based system, not just for trade, but also institutions which the America set up or was instrumental in setting up after the Second World War, like the World Bank, the IMF, uh, and, and um, security arrangements, NATO for Europe, and other arrangements with Japan and Korea in Asia. Is the United States administration trying to withdraw it from all these arrangements with the uh, argument that the United States should be on its own 
America first is also America alone, and that is all right for the Trump administration. That is a completely different world, but I, th I fear that this is what the present administration is, uh, is aiming at. It's not a very clear objective, but to withdraw from the world. And that is very different from trade negotiations during the, since the Second World War. It was always very important to separate security issues from trade issues. For example, America had a number of conflicts with countries over economics in Asia, Korea, Japan, etc., for many several decades. But that was not allowed to interfere with the American security interests in Japan and Korea and Vietnam, etc. And now, of course, well, we can, I won't go into Putin's Russia, but there is also this, this um, issue. That has an implication for the present formulation of trade policy, and that, that the state is so involved with trade. The present administration in the United States, Trump, they, they don't fear or they don't dislike the states being quite heavily involved in trade arrangements. Voluntary export restraints, they suggest, uh, to the European Union uh, when, when the European Union uh, protested against the steel tariffs. Voluntary export restraints on Europe, that is, Europe decides itself or the states of Europe decides on who is going to export cars to the United States and steel to the United States. And, and after a while, quite quickly, that in fact boils down to a system where the state is heavily involved in who is going to trade and at what limits and uh, quotas and, and rents, the rent-seeking, the corruption uh, starts with, with this kind of system. Uh, with state involvement in the actual trade, the operation of trade. And that is, of course, completely against the rules or the thinking of the WTO, where you have national treatment, where you are, are supposed to treat every country in the same way, most favored nation. I mean, very basic. They are, they are not accepting or they are not aware of that this breaks up a very basic uh, view of how trade should be not only free, but it should be also be regulated in a way that does not discriminate. So I agree with what you said. It's very difficult to understand the United States policy in trade now. When you take China, I mean, how is the United States going to have a reasonable relationship or a conflict? Sorry, let me back off and say, how can the United States start to create a conflict with China? At the same time, as in another part of their policy, they have to be very uh, kind to China if they're going to have their support for a policy with North Korea. It's, it's very difficult to understand this. That on the one hand, I think that the Chinese don't understand, don't see that there is a one trade policy and a different security policy vis-a-vis -vis North Korea. I don't know how to explain that. Of course, if you really want, from Americans' point of view, to 
counteract this uh, valid criticism of uh, the Chinese forcing technology transfer, the Chinese uh, not respecting intellectual property rights. But that, if they go to, if the American administration really wanted to counteract that, they should try to have an alliance with European Union and Japan and others to try to stop China and make China change their policy. Instead, they take a conflict with the European Union and uh, also in implicitly over the TPP, that is the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement with Japan. We haven't discussed Japan here uh, so far, but let me just very briefly say that Japan has changed just as much as the American administration. Before Japan was very careful, not being terribly active, but now with TPP being thrown out by Donald Trump, Japan took over the, the, uh, the, the, the leadership on, and, and in a very un, un, unorthodox way for Japan. The national security issue which you touched upon here, that, that the motive for the American steel uh, uh, and auto, possibly automobile restrictions and tariffs. I agree with what you said. And that has made me think a lot about an issue which you touched upon, namely, will the American institutions, the courts, Congress really stand up against Donald Trump and defend in the end, in the, in the core, the Constitution of the United States. And this issue of national uh, security, of course it was a Cold War law, um, and it's ridiculous, it's a nonsense to say that Canada's steel export to the United States is a security issue, or automobile exports to the United States. So I would like the, the Congress to be not so spineless as they are. I mean, they have to take back their control over the, take back control is a popular expression these days, but US Congress should take, take control over how the, the, legal, the laws, which they have already decided upon in 1962, uh, that they are actually enforced with the original interpretation. Then you say, well, as your friends, let's go to court. And the American steel users in the United States are now taking the administration to court, uh, saying that, well, this is, this is not in line with the, with, the, with the law. They will probably lose, because the courts have always followed the, the American president's advice on what is a national security and what is not. But the, the fact that this court case come up, comes up may inspire, I think, Congress and members of Congress to start thinking about how are we going to, are we going to accept that Congress is completely set aside on issues of trade as soon as they are stamped as a security issue, or are we going to question that? And I think that is an issue which will be, uh, where the midterm elections may be important. Even if the Democrats are just as protectionists, perhaps, 
as, as the present administration, they may, in fact, be more interested in, in, in securing the role of the traditional role of Congress. I think it's, uh, to, 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 from a European point of view, it is interesting to note both that there is a now a, a kind of trade creation uh, mechanism which comes into play. Trade creation, both politics and economics. If you take the politics, you can see that when the Americans are now, so to say, putting their country first, it drives other countries together with more free trade agreements between the European Union, the Australia, New Zealand, Mercosur, other countries. And it's not just window dressing that they meet and have dinner and sign something. They have actually a real content in many of these free trade agreements. But it's also that it has an effect on China. Yuki uh, Katainen, the European Union Commissioner, was in Beijing last week, or 10 days ago, and the Chinese suggested that why not have some discussions about cooperation on issues of mutual interest regarding the world trade system. So at the end of this meeting, they set up, they have set up a study group, European Union and China, which is on, um, I see the, 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 the what, what they discuss is WTO rules, subsidies, technology policy, intellectual property rights, other irritants, and preserve support for international trade. And this is something the Americans would never have allowed themselves to, to, to find themselves in this situation. That it's not, America is not the one who suggests this. America is not the one who is signing this with the Europeans. It is the Chinese. And uh, uh, so, so there is an, an, a, a political movement that the, the rest of the world is starting to cooperate more closely in face of the American protectionist policy. America is not leading anymore and perhaps cannot be trusted uh, in, the, in the view of other countries. Um, how am I doing for time? Two more minutes. Two more minutes. I think that one should, the, the, we can perhaps come back to this retaliation issue, but I think one now should give it time to work. I mean, in financial markets, things happen in two seconds or two minutes. But in politics, uh, it takes time. So one has to see these Harley-Davidson cases and so on. It will take weeks and months, but will, it will filter through that prices go up, People, some people lose their jobs, others in Asia may get jobs because of Holly Davidson. But, but so to keep, your, to keep cool and, and uh, wait, uh, because Europe and China have the time on their side. Uh, while, as you mentioned, Donald Trump must have a TV event every day. And uh, uh, 
that, that pressure is not on, on us in, outside. Finally, an, an economics, uh, very important point. I, I extend my two minutes to two and a half now. It's uh, global value chains, supply chains. Donald Trump's group has a very old-fashioned view of how the world trade goes. In their world, it's, you know, it's like Ricardo, you export clothing to Portugal and import wine from Portugal. It's a kind of two-way trade. That is, not, that is an old, very old-fashioned way. Today, you have global value chains, support chains, which goes from one country to another, and the final product of this, these apparatus, for example, is perhaps components from 20 countries or 10 countries, and especially this is very uh, well developed in the NAFTA countries, Mexico, China, Mexico, United States, and Canada. They are intertwined. So, and they're very susceptible to, to, to uh, disturbances. So I think that the effects of these protectionist measures which the Americans are taking is, you know, it's like somebody had said, you put, you put a wall in the middle of the factory or, or several walls in the middle of the factory. So it, it, it really can destroy a production unit very quickly. Uh, with these protectionist measures, which hits the, 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 uh, these supply chains. And that will be a costly for perhaps Donald Trump and, and the protectionists of today, which it was not as late as in the early 80s. I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Carl. Thank I guess we've heard lots of things, uh, lots of different things on where we stand. I just wanted to maybe highlight this idea of the EU and China have time. The US doesn't have much time. This is related to the midterm elections. How important are these elections? I, I, I actually hold the view that this is a much more structural issue, but you know, it's nice to see what the audience has to say and which questions can be raised. So move directly to the audience. Still, I'm going to in whatever order. Maybe, yeah. Still, I'm a lady. You're first. I'm telling you. And then going to Yeah. Estelle Yusufa, I'm a consultant in international affairs. Thank you for your presentation. Um, you discussed agriculture. And then, uh, Alicia, in your um, graphs, uh, is there something to gain for the EU? if there is something going on in agriculture. Uh, so my understanding is that you know, US soybeans would be targeted by China. Uh, would it mean more uh, imports? Um, would it mean China looking for uh, new sources of imports in agriculture, meaning can the EU play something? Is the US thinking about um, action against uh, the, e the European agriculture because of that? Is it a triangular system? Uh, I would you know, like your thoughts on that. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to try. Just, um, just a few points to react. I mean, the first on, on Trump's, Trump's, react, uh, Trump's strategy, I actually think it's relatively clear what, what he wants and where he goes. I don't think it's so unpredictable. 
um, you go back to, I mean, I actually go back to his Playboy um, interview from 1990 and, you know, basically it's all written down there. I mean, the, the script is basically there. Um, and then you read Wilbur Ross and, and Peter Navarro's paper from, from September 2016. I think it sets out a very clear script as well. And if you, if you think about, okay, the North Korea, I think from a rational point of view, I entirely agree with what you said, but, um, you know, for him it's a victory already, right? I mean, so Fox News has been celebrating the two greatest leaders on earth. So, uh, I mean, this is a victory. The North Korea problem is solved, right? So, uh, this is not about rationality. I mean, this is about the way, uh, the way, uh, uh, this president thinks and this president the way this president thinks I think is 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 quite clear and has been laid out uh, Many many times so so no surprises to my to for me at least uh, on, on what's been happening in the last weeks In the last years now this the second point on um, do we have time? Um, uh, I would sort of take a little bit issue with that. I, I mean, I don't think we have that much time I mean, it's true. We should not sort of rush into dramatic countermeasures uh, and be overly quick on those. Um, but the economic effects of what is starting uh, will be visible. I'm pretty sure the next European Commission forecast um, or update on the data uh, for the EU economy will show a slowdown um, uh, compared to what we used to have before. And we've done here some estimates of what would be the impact of uh, car tariffs uh, on the European economy, and of course they would be significant. Um, I think for Germany alone it would be in the order of magnitude immediately of of five billion. So I think very quickly we are in uh, at least uh, a significant dent to our recovery. And I guess that raises the question: What is it we should we should put in place to uh, sort of prepare for this? And I think that is not only a foreign and trade policy issue, it's also a domestic economic policy issue. And I would wish us to have a much more significant discussion on our domestic economic policy uh, to, uh, to be able um, to, uh, to accommodate for essentially uh, the, lack of, the lack of demand for some products and so on and so forth. Um, per perhaps my, my third point on sort of um, US-China, um, what's the implication for Europe? I mean, I had a few pieces on that on, on our blog. I mean, I, th I think one, one thing that's clear is, I mean, sort of, Alicia, what do you describe the immediate, what you would expect immediately is um, as the US and China come to a deal, uh, there would be trade diversion away from Europe, while if they don't come to a deal, it would be uh, sort of an opportunity for us. I mean, that's so sort of the first uh, line of analysis. Um, the problem, of course, being that we have global value chains, um, and you've seen that um, uh, Daimler, uh, Daimler has already given a profit warning because of um, the, the threat of tariffs from China against the U.S. because, you know, German cars are being produced in, in the U.S. and that immediately has consequences uh, for, for European firms. So, so I think uh, it's, it's actually quite, quite complex, this, this triangle, and we are extremely interlinked. Um, and to the extent that goods are, let's say, very substitutable, um, you know, uh, I mean, so just sort of one little detour, I mean, we have a one, uh, I looked at this list of um, 
goods that the USTR put out against uh, China, which yeah. is like 1,300 goods. Yeah. So there's all kinds of interesting goods there. Uh, one is sewing machine needles, right? So a wonderful thing. So US sewing machine needle industry needs to be pro uh, protected apparently against Chinese imports. Well, the truth of the matter is this is a very simple product that is you know, quite easily substitutable. So the Chinese can basically export that to Europe and the European Chinese, uh, European sewing machine needle industry uh, will start, uh, you know, uh, feeling the competition and will, of course, try to redirect some of its uh, supplies to the US. So very quickly, you're also in a game where you basically just shift, uh, you know, trade flows. And that is a cost because it's, it's more costly. I mean, it's not the optimal trade flows. But you would see a shift, a shifting around of the trade flows, from which we don't necessarily benefit. On the contrary, I mean there will be the cost because there's uh, there's more uh, trade frictions around that. Okay. So question. Yeah. So we take these four and then we do a second round. If that's okay. Thank you, Jingmen uh, from College of Europe. Um, it's a very interesting moment if you look at EU-US-China trade relations, but in fact, as you explained, it's not only trade, it's investment, it's everything um, together. Um, but in fact, when we talk about how the EU should react against um, the Trump policy, and, and then in the meantime, Trump has problem with Chinese trade investment issues, um, how the EU should react? Because it's, it's not because when both the EU and China face pressure from the United States, the EU doesn't have problem with China. Um, because had, it has been already for several years that the Europeans talk about level playing field, talk about market access. And, and, and the professor just now mentioned the study group uh, that was just uh, established after the high level economic and trade dialogue or strategic dialogue, I don't know which one you, you talked about. But still, how, how the EU will deal with China? Because in face of pressure from Trump, the EU somehow doesn't really have the opportunity to cooperate with the United States because they, they share some mutual problems in trade relations with in investment relations with China. But in the meantime, they are also pushed by Trump. But in fact, the EU would like to more cooperate with the United States in certain areas to deal with problems caused by China. And so it's very complicated situation. And then talking about bilateral investment agreement between the EU and China, it has been ongoing uh, for many years, for several years. And there is a kind of expectation now in Brussels, I don't know whether it's correct or not, that facing pressure from Trump, China may make some compromise to the EU uh, and then there might be a possibility that this bilateral investment agreement might be concluded uh, sooner and for example the negative list the market access issue can be uh, addressed thank you very good uh, last question over there Yves Moulin, Customs and Trade Lawyer in Steptoe & Johnson, a provoking question. Um, the rise of China is not new, but it's happening now. What is new is the US uh, retreating from the international institutions. Um, isn't this very good for the EU? 
because it's creating a threat which is not existential and it's, focus, it's forcing the member states to actually agree on something. If it were not for uh, the U.S. recent attitude, we would, be, we would be talking about Brexit as a threat that other member states could follow. We would be talking about refugees and how divided we are about that. Well, there's one topic where we all agree we need to retaliate, and the, 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 this is really a position where the EU has maybe strengthened. So, uh, just to sum up, because there were so many questions, so there is agriculture policy. Well, Guntram had many questions, but it's basically beyond everything. Will we really get something out of this, even in the in the event of a full-fledged trade bilateral trade war? I think that's very important. Uh, then we had, you know, how how do we deal with EU-China relations? And of course, is this an opportunity rather than a risk? Yeah, in terms of being united for once uh, in front of a kind of a new, uh, a new threat for Europe, which is U.S. Um, protectionism. So I, I'll just take whatever is left after you, you, you offer some answers. Uh, so uh, just, just go ahead. Uh, whoever wants to start first. Well, I, I, can, I can start. Sure. I start in the reverse order. Is this an opportunity for the EU up to a point? Uh, in a way, yes in everything that has not to do with the, with the U.S. directly, but with the rest of the world. I mean, EU-Mexico is extremely facilitated, of course, with, by what is going on in the U.S. EU-New Zealand, EU-Australia, EU-Japan, all that, of course, President Trump has done a huge favor to the European Union in facilitating that, that, that line of path. But the other element, which is uh, European integration and, and, and you know, helping the U.S. as such, that's not that clear, among other things, because we don't have anything in the European toolbox to fight the United States. I mean, okay, we've done a little bit of trade retaliation, but, but and we, we might keep doing strictly on trade, but it is not in the DNA of the European Union project. Whatever President Trump says, and he said it yesterday, he said the European Union was built against the United States. <laughs> That's a statement by yesterday, which is, sorry, it's a proof of ignorance Amazing ignorance. If it was that, if it was so, it would be in the in the European treaties, in the toolbox, in the policy toolbox, if I can put it that way. A lot of elements to fight the United States and whether there's none. There's none. The door on that side is completely open, you know. Uh, so we are not prepared to have the United States as a commercial and economic enemy. I don't think that's we don't know how to react to that, and it's putting the EU in a very complicated situ situation. You are, you are right that there's unity for now, but we'll see how much it lasts, because, because it's not clear that everybody and all, all, all European members uh, will agree exactly on how to react. The moment reactions need to come. And I recommend, again, you to check the text of the invitation letter of President Tusk for this council, if you haven't done it. You know. You know, the president, uh, President Tusk needs to, uh, needs to send a letter to all, uh, to all heads of state of government to convoke them for the council for today. In the invitation letter, he says, we need, uh, in the current circumstances, we need to prepare for the worst case scenario against the United States. That's the president of the European Union inviting to prepare for the worst case scenario. I mean, imagine all that two years ago. It's unthinkable. And we don't know what to do with that. Now, do we know where the EU is going, uh, the United States is going? Yes and no. Of course, we know generally America first, America alone. But that's not the plan. That's a baby's plan. That's a children's plan. I want the moon. I want to destroy, tear down this house, you know. But that's not the plan you can work with. 
That's not something you can negotiate with. That's what I was saying. Of course, we, we, we know this kind of thing, and you could make more. President Trump boards Merkel out. President Trump wants somebody else in the, in the German cancellery. President Trump wants a weaker Germany or something else in Germany who would be closer and who would be leading the EU in another direction. All that you can say. And in some cases it's explicit. But can you work with that? So I, I printed just to show it physically. This is the list published two months ago of what the US defines as foreign trade barriers. Barriers to trade imposed by the EU. So this is the National Trade Estimate Report, uh, report from 2018. Only the European chapter section by section, what the United States defines of barriers for trade, you know? The equivalent for this is a document half as long of the European Commission for the whole world. And this is only for the United States, for the European Union. Now, you would say, okay, let's sit down. Let's go one by one. That won't work. Because this is published, this is out there, but this is not what this is about. So that's what I'm saying, that we don't know where they're going because it is not based on, on this kind of analysis. On agriculture and the impact on China, I leave, I leave that to you. Uh, but what I can say is that the measures are, the anti-dumping measures against the European common agricultural policy are not an indirect way to fight China. They are against the European common agricultural policy. Whether they will have an indirect effect in the agricultural relations to China, that's for you. Yes. Well, what I meant with time that we have, I think that the, uh, the fact that these supply chains are being uh, destroyed or, or at least affected uh, means that, and also that it, in, in the American protectionists will I mean, work, out, work itself out and it will be seen as being uh, destructive. And let's not get nervous and uh, start thinking of other things, but just, well, we have the WTO rule book, let's follow that and uh, see what happens. But I think it's, it's, this issue is very interesting that, that the American policies are forcing, stimulating the European countries to work more closely and try to sort out less important conflicts and focus on the big issues. Uh, and uh, that, I think, have, we have seen already. But then, then your question about uh, uh, the, the, we see a downturn in the economy from next year, let's say. That is uh, probably true for Europe. We don't know about the United States, but usually it doesn't differ too much. Then, of course, the economist's usual message is do the structural reforms now. When it's a good uh, economic situation, it's, it's much more painful to do it when people be start to become unemployed and, and so on. Uh, but I have nothing more intelligent to say than that this is an old recipe and it's rarely followed. <laughs> But what is, is affected here is also investment, and investment in, in production and in future trade. And that is also sensitive to whether it's a, a good economic situation or bad economic situation. Um, 
at about time uh, when the uh, European Union had these under uh, these informal discussions with the Americans at the end of May, before the date when the steel tariffs would be, so to say, implemented. Cecilia Malmström's office, you know, they had a plan or a suggestion that, okay, why we can, we can discuss, provided you take away these threats of steel tariffs and other tariffs from the American side, we can discuss to have a completely tariff-free trade in manufacturers, in manufacturers. The Americans turned this down, and Ross, uh, Wilbur Ross said that, no, 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 that takes too long. It takes too much time. Even though the time would be too long, and the effort would be too big, too great. He wanted, you know, to have a result before summer. And, uh, of course, with that kind of attitude, it's very difficult to, to, uh, to think of, of making an agreement on uh, these very big issues. So the, and, and it's an old experience, of course, with fake solutions. I mean, there are many fake solutions in politics and problems. The reality comes back, hits back after a while. And, you will realize that, and, and it will cause you new problems. You haven't solved any problems. That's, I, I may be able to say something on agriculture, but you are much better than, than me on this. I'm not an expert in agriculture, but I'm cornered uh, by um, you know, other panelists to talk about agriculture, so I'll, I'll, I'll do so. I first wanted to go to this very general question, is this an opportunity for Europe, yeah? And I would agree with Guntram that the, the, the only thing I wanted to say is that within the, the negative uh, and obvious impact of a trade war for a region that is a net exporter, by, by the way, the largest in the world, there's no way you can see this as a net benefit. However, one can think about sectoral, um, sectoral, um, sectoral differences depending on how the game is played. So the only thing I was trying to say, and I think that would hold true no matter what, uh, you know, I, I don't believe in trade analysts or equity analysts, let me tell you. So they may now be dumping uh, Mercedes-Benz for something that might be actually of great benefit. They might not see actually the third country consequences of everything we are seeing. But, but I guess their reaction is more on the fact that, which I was not taking into account, that there will be direct import tariffs on Europe. So the only thing is once they reassess that, if they think we can take part of the China um, market because of the US, then maybe they can reassess that. But net probably will be negative. You see what I mean? Like, so in a nutshell, I think, I think that the only way to see this as, an, this as an opportunity, as a net exporter, global net expo exporter in the world, is really uh, the fact that you rebalance, which goes back to my you know, general message here, that you finally realize that maybe you're looking at the wrong market. You're heavily dependent on the US, everything, on investment, on trade, and the world is shifting elsewhere. So the question is, will this be an opportunity for us to realize? That would be the only case in which I would say overall and dynamically speaking, this could be an opportunity for Europe. But you, you need to, we need to be like, you know, have a great vision yeah, of where the world is going. 
something like, you know, India being a much larger market very soon than the U.S. for us. Nobody's talking about India here. I mean, at most we have, by the way, not yet ratified um, a free trade agreement with Vietnam. We're not talking, we're talking about New Zealand, sorry to say. We're not talking about China or India. I mean, for me, this is, are, are we really reaping the opportunity? I'm not sure. You see, we're not talking about markets that can substitute the U.S. That's my problem with, with this uh, opportunity. Will it be missed? We need to think big because the U.S. is huge for us. It's our largest outside Europe, of course, trading partner. So, so it's not going to be solved with New Zealand, sorry to say. Yeah? And not at the speed we sign agreements, let alone the Mercosur. So, sorry. <laughs> I mean, this is, um, for us to reap the opportunity, we'd, we'd have to be faster, let alone united, but faster, and looking for big markets, because this is a massive structural change. I, in that regard, I would slightly, not disagree, but I would just like to look at the fact that this is not Trump waking up in the morning on, only because the Trans-Pacific Partnership was launched by Obama. And that in itself was a massive um, containment measure against China. So this has started a while ago. Obama, as you remember, in this APEC meeting and went to Australia, 40,000. But how did you? With China's going to be No, no. I'm, I'm, of course, I'm referring to China now. I think the difference is that with Obama, it was clear. Pivot to Asia. We're losing ground. Sorry, we're here. We're back here. Now it's like I'm shooting every, everywhere. So in that regard, I agree. But as regard as China, as uh, you know, as much as China is concerned, the U.S. policy has been has moved away from engagement to containment with Obama. And I don't think it will change, no matter who comes next, because this is a question of hegemons. How many hegemons do we, would you like to have if you were the hegemon? I guess the answer is very simple. So, you know, one, you, not a, nobody else. And it's as so I don't think this is just waking up in the morning in a nutshell. And this is why I think for Europe, the only opportunity is to see we like it or not. We don't understand each other. It's a different culture. We know all of that. But frankly, and this is, goes to your question, we're pushed there. You want it or not, we're pushed. Toward, and it doesn't have to be only China, you know, at the end of the day. and. We showed a few statistics, I don't remember where. It's already 48% of um, Asia, emerging Asia is 48% of the middle class in the world, 60% by 2025. Those are the people who are going to buy our products, let's face it. So I think the only opportunity is really, wow, you know, we're cornered, let's move on. But it, it won't happen with New Zealand, sorry, or Japan, sorry. I mean, we need to look at emerging, massive, largely, I mean, large countries for us, where that middle class will be. So, so that's, uh, that, that would be my, so yes, we should talk. But the question is, China should be readier. My point here is, I think the, the other opportunity is that China is probably feeling slightly isolated, west-wise, because, you know, you have Japan, you have Korea, although China is trying very hard now with this North Asia, I'm sure you've heard about this, trying to entice the interests of Korea and, and Japan feeling the pinch of being isolated, at least as regards the West. I mean, the West meaning the developed world. So it's a good opportunity for us to ask for more than we've ever had, yeah? So you, you mentioned the negative uh, investment, um, negative list on FDI. I think it's more about the whole governance issue. You know, can we 
understand each other. Is, is it really, are we working on a market-to-market uh, market kind of uh, model? And I think that's a big uh, question for China. The good thing, China is decelerating, good thing, I don't want to say the good thing is China is decelerating, but for an agreement, you know, for, for conversations, China is indeed decelerating. The data, and we just got a bunch of data, it's looking really, let me tell you, investment is at its lowest level since 1999. It's growing only 6.1%. Exports are already seeing, you know, the, the, a very obvious slowdown. I think it won't take long. We're already seeing it, by the way, in Europe in the first semester. It's only going to continue. So in a way, we'll be cornered even further beyond Trump to, to come up with ideas as to how we can, you know, make this grow together. Uh, and, and on agriculture, last word still. I think, uh, frankly, you're absolutely right, if I understood your point, that Europe could profit. Because I don't think Chinese will come and say, oh, I don't like your agricultural policy. Because, sorry, there's so many things they are sub subsidizing themselves that it would be, you know, absolutely, it's a no issue. I, I think that that's not something that would in, kind of entice a conversation with China, yeah? And China is importing increasingly uh, from, of course, Australia, Japan, Korea. <coughs> I think we're missing a massive opportunity of shifting our agriculture products to China. And in itself, that could you know, be a whole chapter of negotiation. So yes, I think that offers a, a very important opportunity for us in China. Yeah. Uh, that's all. Uh, we, are uh, we have one minute left. I guess that's all. And we finish on time, Swiss time, one minute before uh, the end of the session. Thank you very much for your time.